It is very true that in times of extremis, in times of desperation, in times when you have lost everything in your life, it is very easy to turn to God, is it not? When you have no answers from your doctor, when you have no answers from your pastor, when your own parents don't know what's going on, when perhaps you yourself don't know what the problem is, you turn to God, don't you? Now, I can tell you that that is true in the medical field. I see 20 to 40 patients every day. And the reason they come to see me principally is they want to know what? What's wrong, right? Or they want relief of pain and they do know what's wrong. Those are the two common reasons that I see people in the emergency room. But what do you do when you don't have an answer for them? What do you do when there's no treatment? What do you do when your hands go up? You turn to God. Now that's very easy to do when there's no answers, when you're in serious or critical condition. But what about something that affects 60 million people? It is life-threatening, but it has no symptoms. Can you imagine that? There is something that I see every day in my practice. It's high blood pressure. And how many symptoms does high blood pressure have? 90% of the time? None. How many people do you think even know that they have high blood pressure? Half of them don't even know. But what you don't know can hurt you. I'm here to tell you that. What you don't know can kill you. My mother called me up two days before presenting the seminar. And she said, Tim, our best friend was exercising in the gym and he dropped in. And I said, what? This guy was the best man at their wedding. He was in perfect health. He exercised every day, lived a clean lifestyle. And she said, why, Tim? Why? They called me about four or five times in one day. They were just freaking out. They said, Tim, we feel numb. We don't understand. And I said, well, I'll tell you that as far as heart attacks go, because that's what they're saying this was, the first and last symptom for one-third of them is sudden death. Most of us don't know that. Most of us think, well, did he have chest pain? Did he have shortness of breath? You know, maybe this guy was not living a good lifestyle. No, he was living a good lifestyle. Unfortunately, his was one of the cases where death was the first and last symptom. He had something going on that he didn't know about, that no one else knew about. And I'm here to share with you that in our lives, it would be better for us to have the symptoms. It would be better for us to perhaps have chest pain. It would be better for us to have paralysis when the cancer of sin has found its way into our hearts. But the problem is, there's often no 
symptoms. So while they're setting that up, I'm going to share with you that it's probably better that we would have symptoms um, because it would lead us to seek help. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we do. I can tell you a story of what happened to me that changed my heart, that brought me to feel my need of God. How many of you have been to South America? Great. Come on in. I can tell you that I was there and I was asked by a friend of mine to come do some medical work. Common request that I often have. We went there to a very remote village in the middle of nowhere. Um, Took us about three hours from the nearest city. There was no running water except for an hour a day. There was no electricity. There was absolutely nothing there as far as modern conveniences. What we did as far as medical work consisted of my stethoscope, (laughs) some water, some charcoal, and what we could get a hold of as far as poultices or whatever, maybe some cabbage. It wasn't a whole lot. A lot of what I did um, was really just lifestyle. You could probably project it on the wall better. And we, ch- we could turn off all the lights. You want to move this out of the way? Yeah, you can move that out of the way. That's okay. I can tell you that um, when I got to the village, there were tons of people that wanted to see me. They hadn't seen a physician or a nurse in their whole lives. They described different symptoms, and most of the problems were fairly simple. And I ended up giving them just a lot of counseling about the eight laws of health natural remedies, how to change their lifestyle. Some of them were a little bit more complicated. Something that I noticed throughout all of the times that I was with the people is that they were always trying to get ahead in line. There were so many people, and they would try to find creative ways to sneak to the front of the line. One time, I took a break to go to the bathroom. And... I don't know if any of you have ever gone to the bathroom in the United States, but if you're a girl, then it's considered rude not to talk talk to the person who's trying to talk to you in the bathroom. Now, if you're a guy and you're sitting there at the stall, you look straight ahead. You don't look to the right. You don't say, hey, how's it going? You don't talk to the person in the stall next to you. You just go about your business and then you can talk after you leave, right? Or maybe when you're washing your hands. That's right. But I can tell you that that was not the case there. I had uh, several people follow me into the bathroom. And I'm sitting there relieving myself. And they said, Doctor, una pregunta. Doctor, one question. I thought I was saying, Dude, I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> now, I can speak Spanish fluently, and I didn't say that to them. And I said, Well, why don't you wait until I come back to the clinic and then we can get you back in line, and then I'll answer a question when it's your turn. But there was one person that wasn't like that. There was one person who never came to the front of the line. In fact, when it was her turn, she'd walk back. She'd go back to the end of the line. She was a young girl. She was 15. And her mother was the one that was bringing her to be seen by the doctor. And every time she'd bring it to the front, she'd say, no, 
I'm fine. There's lots of people a lot more serious than I am. No, no, there's so many people that want his attention. So she was the only one who wasn't trying to cut. And she kept saying, oh, you know, there's so many other people here. They're a lot worse off than I am. No big deal. Well, eventually, we got to the end of the day. I had gone all day without eating anything. I had not even taken a break so much as to really go to the bathroom except for once during that day. And finally, my friends said, look, Tim, we're going to go. We're going to leave. And I said, there's still more patience to see. They said, look, we've got to go. We can always uh, give them uh, advice or leave some supplies with them, but we need to leave. But right as that happened, the mother of this young girl grabbed a hold of her shoulders and just marched her toward the front and just sat her down in the chair next to me. And I said, hi, I'm Tim Riesenberger. What's your name? She said, my name's Helen. I said, Helen, what seems to be the problem today? She said, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. And I said, well, what sort of problems have you been having? What caused you to come here? She's like, well, I didn't want to come here. My mom insisted. And I said, well, why? Well, I think it's my heart. And I kind of laughed to myself. I said, okay. She said, it's, it's pounding. It's fluttering. Sometimes it hurts. When I play, I can't keep up with the other kids. Sometimes I get short of breath. Sometimes I'm fine, but sometimes I'm not. And I'm not sure what's wrong. How long has this been going on for? Well, the last year or so, it's been pretty severe. I said, okay. So I kind of chuckled to myself. I looked at a perfectly healthy 15-year-old who had no outward appearances of disease or lack of health. And so I took my stethoscope and I kind of chuckled. I said, well, maybe it's some boy problem and maybe I'll hear him right here over your heart. Now, when I did that, it was no joke, unfortunately. I heard the worst sound I've ever heard in my life from someone's heart. I heard a loud noise called a murmur. And unfortunately, I think she could tell that there was a problem because she began to cry just as I listened to her heart. The color drained out of her face and she began to weep. Her mother began to cry as well. As I continued to listen, I had her stand up. I had her sit down. I had her turn on her side. I did all the maneuvers that we do in medicine to find out where this sound was coming from. It was a hole that unfortunately had found its way between the two large chambers of her heart. And I began to realize what was happening. Normally, the right side of the heart pumps and sends blood where? To the lungs, that's right. And then it comes from the lungs to the left side of the heart. And then from the left side of the heart, where does the blood go? The rest of the body. Now the problem is when there is a hole between those two chambers, the blood on the left side goes to the right side because that's a higher pressure system. The left side of the heart has to supply the whole body. 
And so the pressures there are much higher. Now, that's not a problem. If you think about it, is it? Left side of the heart just sends it back to the right where it goes to the lungs. So it gets super oxygenated, right? Unfortunately, there's a problem. Because what eventually happens is the right side of the heart starts to compensate. The pressures start to increase on the right side of the heart until eventually the pressures on the right side of the heart exceed the left side of the heart. And what happens then? When you take the blood from the right side of the heart and it goes directly to the left side of the heart, what if you missed the lungs? That's right. It's called Eisenmenger's complex, and you don't need to remember that. That's a medical term. But it's very serious. And it means that within a short time, you will get such critical lack of oxygen that you will die. Your heart will fail. Your body will decompensate. And I shared this with her. And she was very distraught initially. But then she felt happy. And why do you think she felt happy? That's right. She knew it was wrong. She had gone for years not knowing what was wrong. And so I told her, and she said, so do I need to drink more water like the last guy? I said, no. Are you guys going to put a cabbage poultice on me? No, we're not going to do that. She says, well, what, what do I do? I said, you need to go to the capital of your country, Lima, and you need to find a cardiologist and a cardiothoracic surgeon and see what they can do to repair the hole in your heart. And you may need a new one if they can. And she said, well, I've never left my village. I don't understand. Why can't I just uh, change the way I eat like you told the other people? Or maybe get more water or more exercise. I said, those things are all good, but they will not change your heart. I have, I have nothing to offer you. I'm sorry. And she said, well, how will I even get the money to go to Lima? How will I even get the money to pay for all of this? I said, I don't know. I'm not sure. But I can tell you one thing, is that you do need a new heart. You do need that treatment. Because this is very serious. Your heart is showing signs of beginning to fail. The shortness of breath you're getting is indicating a lack of oxygen. And so she said, okay, I'll do that. And she agreed. I said, I don't know how you're going to get the money. I'll do what I can from my end to maybe contact friends of mine in the States that are physicians that maybe could do it for you. But that's the answer that I gave. And as I looked into that girl's eyes, I realized something for the first time in my life. That God was speaking to me and He was telling me that I needed a new heart. Because in the story of Helen, I see an illustration that is so clear of what we all need. And it illustrates the steps to giving your heart to Jesus like nothing else. The first step to know is found in John chapter 12, verse 32. Please join me there if you have your Bibles. John chapter 12, verse 32. 
And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Jesus is drawing you right now. Jesus is calling you in a thousand ways and through a thousand different people every day in the flower that you see as you pass, in the bird that sings on the sidewalk, in that friend that calls you, in that email that you get. God is calling you and drawing you to Himself. Luke 19, verse 10. What does that tell us? Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So God is what? He's come to do what? That's right. God is seeking you with all that He has. He is looking for you. Do you realize that? He is looking for the lost. And how many are lost? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God is... That's it. That's it. you got to hit pause. Just hit pause. Okay. All right. So you can put that up here. I don't know if I need this microphone. I do? Is that helpful? Okay. God is seeking for you and for me. Can you advance the picture? This is on our way to the village. Whoop. <laughs> Sorry? Sure. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Better? Better? Can we angle the screen, perhaps? How about that? Can someone angle the screen for me? I'm going to read you a passage from the Desire of Ages, and it's page 479. I think it illustrates this point very clearly. Jesus knows us individually and is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows us all by name. He knows the very house in which we live. He knows the name of each occupant. He has at times given directions to his servants to go to a certain street in a certain city to such a house to find one of his sheep. Do you realize that? God knows where you live. And he has at times given direction to someone to find you. I believe that God did that for Helen. She sent me. He sent me to find her in Peru, in a remote village, in the middle of nowhere. Go forward. Just hit an arrow. All you have to do is hit the arrows. This was my clinic. What I did is spend a lot of time just praying with people. You can just hit the arrow, on, uh, like one of the keys, because then that way that, won't, that thing won't come up all the time. Yep, just hit the arrow. Yep. I showed them... Natural remedies, such as water, next remedy. But most of the time, I just pointed them to God as the one who could heal them. Next. 
This is actually the bathroom on the far left <laughs> where I encountered some friends. Next, next slide. This is the mother of Helen, who was always in the outskirts, listening as I was treating the people. Next. Now, this is, this is Helen and her sister. Helen is the one in the yellow. And she's actually sad or happy? She's happy. And it's exactly <laughs> why he said, is that I've given her bad news, but at least she knows what's wrong. Next slide. This is her as I was leaving. And we'll just leave it there for a while. And as I was leaving, these truths just came to my mind. Stronger and stronger. Jesus knows who you are. He knows where you are. He's looking for you. And I can tell you right now that that is the first step to salvation. Is knowing that God is looking for you. Because who is making the first move here? Did Helen come to me? Did she visit Seattle, Washington, where I practice? Did she come to my office? Did she come to the ER where I work? So you know what? My heart's bothering me. No, she didn't. God sent me to her. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, what? Open the door. What will happen? I will come in unto him and will sup with him. Jesus is polite, isn't he? He knocks. Did I force Helen to come see me? Did I say, hey, you, at the end of the crowd there, come on up here right now. Did I say that? No. Jesus doesn't either for you and I. He knocks on the door of our hearts. What we have to do is the next step, right? Because if Helen had stayed at the outskirts of the crowd, would I have ever met her? No. I never would have seen her, never would have known, and she would be dead right now. She would not have any hope as far as I would know. The second step is what Helen did. She finally came forward, right? You and I must respond to God. You and I must hear His call. But in order to come to God, we never will unless we feel one thing. What's that? Our need. Can you imagine how much need my friend right now is feeling with his whole life gone, taken away from him in one day? Would you say he feels his need? I'd say he does. But when you don't have any symptoms, why go to the doctor, right? Why would you seek for help if there was no need? Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. To give you an idea, this is Jesus with His disciples. He had just called Matthew to follow Me. Matthew throws a big party for Jesus. And as He sits down, 
He's sitting down with what is said in the Bible as publicans and sinners. And the Pharisees say, well, why are you eating and drinking with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answers a very profound statement. Those that are what? Are whole. Have no need of who? The physician. But those that are sick. But go and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call what? The righteous. But who? Sinners to repentance. Jesus did not come to call those who were whole, but those who were sick. And in order for you to respond to God's seeking, in order for you to open that door, when He knocks, whoa, <laughs> you've got to feel your need. There's got to be something wrong, right? If you're going to go to the ER and pay your $100 copay, <laughs> there's got to be something wrong, right? You're not going to go otherwise. That's the second step. is for you to feel your need of God and respond to Him seeking you. Because I could have come to the village, set up clinic, and walked right out and never seen Helen at all. But she felt her need, right? She knew that something was wrong. And you see, I believe in all of our lives... There's something wrong. And we know it. There's something missing. There are times when our conscience awakens. Many of us try to fill our lives with things to keep us distracted. But I can tell you when the music stops and we're all alone and it's quiet in our minds, there's a voice that speaks to us. That voice is God. I can tell you that in my own heart, God spoke to me. As I was looking into the eyes of this young girl, I saw Jesus calling me to a new heart. You must respond to God and His knocking. But you won't respond unless you feel your need and you realize your condition. Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 6. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6. What kind of shape does it look like in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6? Doesn't sound too good, does it? From the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's a very bad word, isn't it? Putrefying. What does that mean? Rotting, stinking, decaying. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. We are in critical condition. I can tell you that my friend, whom I shared with you about, realizes his situation. He realizes that he needs help. He realizes that only God can help him now. But you and I, who have lots of food, lots of shelter, 
great job, great education, good relationships, do we feel our need? I believe that most of us don't, but you know there's someone seeking you, right? There's someone who's going to create that need in your life. He's not going to let you go down to perdition without a fight and without warning you. He will allow things to happen in your life to bring you to Him. But the choice that you have is when God knocks, will you answer? When you feel that need, will you seek Him? Or will you stay at the edge of the crowd saying, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, I'm just about the same as everyone else. There are a lot of people worse off than I am. If you stay away, God cannot help you. The last step in giving your heart to Jesus is something very similar to Helen. When I told Helen, there is a hole in your heart, could she see it? I don't see one. I tried to convince her. I let her listen to her sister's heart and then to her own. She could hear the difference. But she still couldn't see it, right? She had to trust what? What? I was saying, right? I can tell you that I encounter patients every day that are not like Helen. And I believe for one reason it's because they're not 15. Let's say they're 47. And they come in with the same problem. And they say, Dr. Riesenberger, I appreciate your opinion and your diagnosis. But you know what? I was just logged on to the, what? The internet. And I've already read about this problem. And I know what I need. I need you to do this, this, and this. Or they say, you know, Dr. Riesenberger, where did you go to school? I actually went to Stanford. So that usually is not much of a problem. But I've had a patient one time, and they said, Dr. Riesenberger, do you have a license? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I am board certified in emergency medicine. I have a California... No, no, I meant a driver's license. Oftentimes, my appearance does not engender confidence because I look so young. Or occasionally, I'll get someone who's in their 60s or 70s. Well, that's nice. I appreciate what you may think, Dr. Riesenberger, but I want a second opinion. Do you want a second opinion? You can have one. His name's Satan. He'll give you a second opinion. He'll tell you you're fine. He'll tell you, yeah, there's some problems in your life. But doesn't everyone have problems? You're only human, aren't you? Things like that are going to happen. You can have your second opinion if you want it. There are a thousand voices and countless sources that will give you that as well. But I can tell you that in order to get help, you have to accept the diagnosis that the physician gives you. And that is what Helen probably had no problem with because she was 15. (laughs) She didn't have a degree. She didn't go to school. You know, it's funny. I practiced medicine in Australia uh, at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. And it's something that's very foreign. Even though it's a first world country, 
there's not all this lawsuits and all this stuff going on like in our country. Whenever I do a procedure on a patient, I have to give them what's called informed consent. And that means I tell them the risks and the benefits of whatever the procedure is I'm going to do on them. And I remember I was seeing a lady for a headache in Australia. And I believe she needed a spinal tap. And I said, well, Mrs. Jones, I'm afraid that this headache of yours could be a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which means a bleed in your brain that's now stopped. And the only way we're going to detect that is with a CAT scan. But that's only 90%. So I think we probably will have to do the lumbar puncture. And so I explained to them the risks and benefits. And her husband interrupted. She said, Doctor, why are you telling my wife this? And I said, well, I'm giving her informed consent. I'm giving her, Dr. Riesenberger, did we go to medical school for eight years? No. We know that you have that degree. We don't. We understand that you realize what needs to be done. We want you to do what you think is best. That's why we're here. And I thought about that. And you know, they're right. (laughs) I don't know why we do all this stuff. And they just explained to me, it makes no sense for me to make the decision because I don't have the background. I don't have the understanding. But how many of us today want to make that decision for our lives? Did you create your body? Did you fashion your mind? Do you understand what it means to regenerate and redeem the soul? You don't. I don't. But there's a physician who does. But we are always trying to second-guess that physician, aren't we? We're always trying to say, well, I'm not that bad. I don't, no, I don't need to go that far, Lord. Right? I mean, that's just going to look really weird if I you know, were to raise my hand or come forward. Don't we say that? We do. We have to believe the diagnosis of the great physician. And this is the diagnosis he gives us. John chapter 8 Verses 31 through 36. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 36. I am thankful that God gives us symptoms. And in these verses, He tells you what the symptoms are. Then said Jesus to the Pharisees that rejected Him. Is that what it says? Then said Jesus to the Greeks and the unbelievers. Then said Jesus to who? The Jews, Jews, but not just the Jews. The Jews that what? Jesus said to the Seventh-day Adventist church. Do you realize that? We are basically the Jews that what? Believed in Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus is addressing this to you and to me? Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed in him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, and this is what I love, Verily, verily. What does the word verily mean? Truly. And he doesn't just say it once. 
He says, verily. No, wait, you're not paying attention. Verily. He says it twice. I say unto you, whosoever what? Committeth sin. Is anyone here who's ever committed sin? Yes. Whosoever committeth sin is what? The servant of sin. Don't you see? That is the symptom. If you are committing sin, it is a warning to you. It is an alert that something is not right. That is not what you were designed for. It is a symptom of death in the soul. Oftentimes, we look at these symptoms and it's like a tree. If I have a tree in my backyard that has apples, if I pick off all the apples and even pull off all the leaves, what's going to grow next season? More apples. But what if I want pears? What if I just pick them all off again? Will pears grow next season? No. What's the only way I can make that tree grow pears? I have to graft something new into that tree, don't I? I need to change the very nature of the tree or plant a pear tree. And so often in life, we say, oh, well, you can't wear those earrings. Oh, you know, the dress is a little too short. Let's bring it down. You know, let's change your diet. Folks, don't pick the fruit off the tree. Change the tree. Don't try to fix the outsides while you ignore the heart. Jesus says that he who commits sin is what? The servant of sin. I can tell you right now, if there is sin in your life, if there is something, and I believe with all my heart that we all have one sin or two sins that are our Achilles heel. Does anyone know what an Achilles heel is? It's your weak point. Hebrews describes it as the sin that so easily, what? Besets us. There's one or two, I believe, in everyone's life. My life may be four or five, maybe six. (laughs) But I believe with every person, there's one or two areas where Satan knows he can just go and get you back in there. He has that little ace in the hole, that little trump card that he knows that you're weak in. Friends, I'm here to tell you that is the chest pain of your life. That is the shortness of breath of your life. That is the palpitations that Helen was feeling. It is warning you that something is wrong and needs to change. I'm going to go on. Verse 35, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to share with you something from this verse you haven't seen before. The servant does not abide in the house forever. But do you know what that means? Even the servant of sin, ourselves. Even though God warns us, you are not going to abide in the house forever. What does that mean? That means you do abide for what? For a time. God grants every one of us, good, bad, 
committed or not, a window of time, doesn't he? He gives us a space. We are told that Calvary purchased not just redemption for those who would accept him, but time, even for those who would reject him. Right now, every beat of the heart, every breath that you take, whether you are committed or not, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you have given your life to Jesus or not, is because of that cross on Calvary. Jesus has bought me time. And I'm so thankful for that time. Because during that time, I can make a decision. I can choose Jesus Christ. But I have to accept the diagnosis. I can tell you right now that every one of us can understand this. Because it's that plain. He that committeth sin is the servant of sin. Let that be your chest pain. Let that be your shortness of breath. Let that be your symptom, as it was for Helen. But it does not end there. I can tell you it goes on. Because I told Helen what the diagnosis was, correct? I told her what the problem was. Now, what if I left her village and she said, okay, I'm going to start drinking more water. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to start getting more exercise. And she never left her village. What would happen? She would die. That's right. Because what did I tell her? To go to Lima. To see a cardiologist. To see a cardiothoracic surgeon. To repair the hole in her heart before it was too late. You not only have to believe the diagnosis, but you have to follow the treatment, my friends. The great physician makes no mistake. He gives you the diagnosis. And the good news about God is He gives you the only way that you can be saved. You know, I went to University of California at Davis. And on their little mug, you know what it says? Many pathways, one journey. I can tell you right now, there are not many pathways. There is one way, one truth, and one life. And that's Jesus Christ. God only gives you the absolute bottom line to save you. He doesn't give you all this extra superfluous fluff. He tells you exactly what you need to be saved. And that's what I told Helen. No more, no less. But you have to believe it. I saw a patient one time. They came into the emergency room for pain in their finger. Pretty small, right? They had a little red spot on their finger. And I said, well, Mrs. Smith, uh, what seems to be the trouble? I've got this pain in my finger, Doc, and I've got this little red spot. I think there's something wrong. I said, well, let's take a look. Uh, all right. And I said, well, how did you get this? Um, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? Did you, did you smash it? Did you hit it? Did something bite it or something like Well, I'm not sure what happened last night. I said, well, why? Well, I was passed out. Why? <laughs> well, I was using some methamphetamine, that's speed, drug, and I drank a little bit too much alcohol, and so I don't remember how I got this. I said, okay. Well, it looks like it's an infection, but it looks like it's early. I'm going to get an x-ray to make sure the infection hasn't gone to the bone or is not deep in your finger. 
and I'll come back. So I took the x-ray, ordered it from the technologist. He took it. I looked at the x-ray, threw it up. I actually think I brought her the x-ray too, and I showed it to her. I said, your bones look good. I don't see any gas in the tissues or any bacteria that's producing something that could be deadly or life-threatening. I think it's an early infection. So I'm going to give you a dose of antibiotics. I'm going to write your prescription, and I want you to take it for two weeks, whether or not what? What do we always say? It goes away. That's right. We have you take them and finish them, whether or not it goes away. And so what happened was we gave her her first dose, wrote her her prescription, and what do you think I told her to stop doing on the way out? <laughs> stop doing the methamphetamine. Stop doing the speed. Stop doing the alcohol. And make sure that you follow up if it gets worse. Standard, right? You guys have heard this song and dance routine. Now, this patient came back in one week. Now, I didn't see her. I was actually the director of the nurse practitioners and physician assistants. You guys know who nurse practitioners are? They're kind of like people who can see patients. Uh, they're just like nurses or people with advanced training, but they're not physicians. So they will give me the tough cases. And one of my PAs came up to me. She said, Tim, I've got this case, and I'm really worried. I've got this lady with this finger. And I said, oh, finger. And she's like, it's bad. I said, well, what does it look like? He said, she said, it's a big lump of pus. I said, you're kidding me. She's like, yeah, I, I think that this is serious. This is beyond my scope. And I said, does the lady use speed? She's like, yes. Does she drink? Yes. Does she smoke? Yes. Was she seen here last week? Yes. Is the old chart mine? Yes. I'll go see her. And I walked in the room. They didn't recognize me. I said, hi, I'm Dr. Riesenberger. How are you doing? Well, doctor, I'm so glad that you're here because last time I was here, that doctor didn't do anything for me. I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. So, so what did he do? Well, I think he took an x-ray. I said, yes. And did he give you any medicine? Uh, I think he gave me a dose of medication. Did he write a prescription for you? Yeah, he did that. Uh, did you fill the prescription? No, I couldn't. It was snowy outside, and it was kind of dangerous on the roads. I said, did he recommend that you quit anything on the way out? Uh, yeah, he told me to quit drinking and smoking and using the drugs. I said, yes, and did you quit all this? She said, yes. I said, when did you quit today? <laughs> I said, oh, okay. I said, I have some bad news, ma'am. I think you may lose your finger. I knew it. That doctor didn't know what he was talking about. I said, ma'am, I was the doctor that saw you last week. And I can tell you, I saw your finger. I knew what it looked like before. And the reason that it's not better is why? She didn't take the prescription. She didn't quit the drugs or the smoking or the alcohol. And when it got worse, she didn't what? She didn't come back. There was a few days between the red spot and the entire finger being a mass of pus. Believe me. That woman went to the operating room for her finger immediately. And the doctor had to lance through all that pus and drain it out. And she was going to come and sue me. You realize that? How often we blame the physician for our own mistakes. Now, it's very interesting, though, because this story illustrates perfectly what your job in salvation is and what God's job in salvation is. Do you realize that? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. 
work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Now, if it ended there, I would probably be fearing and trembling. But it doesn't just say that, does it? For it is what? God who works where? In you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. I'll make it so plain to you. When I saw this patient with the infected finger, what did I do for her? I ordered a what? X-ray. Could she do that? No, she couldn't. You have to have a license to do that. I ordered what else for her? An antibiotic. That's correct. I wrote a prescription. Could she do that? She doesn't have a license. She doesn't have a DEA. She couldn't do that. Now you tell me what she should have done. When she went home, she was supposed to take that prescription and do what with it? Go to the pharmacy. And when she got to the pharmacy, they would give her some pills. And what would she do four times a day? Take the pill. Now, would I come to her door and say, Hi, it's Dr. Riesenberger. I've got your Keflex here. You laugh. She'd be freaked out. She's like, um, okay, I'm going to like call your hospital and get you fired because you're like stalking me. <laughs> right? Would she not say that? Why would, she do, why would she think that? Because she can what? She can do it herself. Don't you realize that God is going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself? It's that simple. And what does he expect you to do? what you can do for yourself. Can you change your heart? Could Helen change her heart? Could she repair it? Can you change your thoughts? No. But I can tell you, when God tells you to read His Word and to pray, does the Bible levitate off your desk and come over and open itself and turn to the chapter that you need to read that day? Why? Because you can do that. It's that simple. God is going to work in you to bring about the desire to do it. He's going to give you the conviction of what to do. But then after that, who has to work it out? You. You. And God is not going to ask you to do what you can't. Did I tell a lady, go order an x-ray. Go write yourself some Keflex. Well, maybe you ought to pick the right antibiotic. Did I do that? No, because she can't. Did I tell Helen? Well, you know what? When you're entering the aorta, you want to make sure that you have the debakey clamp. You know, do, do I say, did I say that to her? She can't do the surgery on herself. But I told her to go to Lima, right? I'm going to share a passage with you from the Desire of Ages here. It's in John 11, verse 34. John 11, verse 34, and the commentary is on Desire of Ages, 535. Desire of Ages, 535. You all remember the story of Lazarus, right? The story of where Jesus raises Lazarus. And what does it say in verse 34? He comes to the grave and there's something in his way. What was it? Stone. And what does Jesus say about the stone? 
take what? Ye away what? The stone. It seems very simple, but read this. Desire of Ages 535. Take ye away the stone. Christ could have commanded the stone to remove and it would have obeyed his voice. Can you imagine that? Stone, move out of the way. Yes, sir. <laughs> it rolls out of the way. Could he? Yes, he could have. He could make the rocks cry out. Christ could have commanded the stone to remove and it would have obeyed his voice. He could have bidden the angels who were close by his side to do this. At his bidding, invisible hands would have removed the stone. But it was to be taken away by human hands. Christ would show that humanity is to cooperate with divinity. What human power can do, listen carefully, what human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. Do you see how clearly that is? Now I'm going to share with you the key to that. Let's say right now, one of you collapses. Unconscious. No response. What does God expect you guys to do that are surrounding that person? If you know CPR, to start CPR, right? And call what? 911. Now, what if you called 911, the paramedics arrive, drive you into my ER, right? And you say, Tim, my aunt, she just passed out. She's got no blood pressure. And I say, well, what's the problem? I don't know. And what if I say, well, let me pray. And I kneel down there in the ER and say, oh, Lord Jesus, please save Auntie May. And that's it. Would you be happy with that? No. You'd appreciate the prayer. But what do you expect me to do? Shocker. Put the epinephrine in here. Intubator. Put the line in her chest. Continue the CPR. Direct your nurses and paramedics. Why? Because I can do that. I can do ACLS and ATLS. I can run the gauntlet of coding somebody. I do it all the time. But does God expect that of you? Does he expect you to code the patient? Okay, give a, gram, give a milligram of atropine. Give me one more of epi. Does he want you to do that? Why? Because you don't know that. Don't you see? God expects us to do what we can. And that is different for each person, isn't it? God expects from you what percent, do you think? 100%. I can tell you right now, no one in this room will be saved without giving 100%. But when I see a little child who's 15... Is her 100% the same as mine? No. Is her understanding the same as mine? No. But who knows what you can do? God. And who knows what you can't do? God. Do I treat all my patients the same? No. If I had Anna come in with a cut on her finger, she'd say, Tim, oh, it hurts. Ah, you got to knock me out for it. Ooh. Do you think I would knock her out? No, I wouldn't. Why? She's an adult. That's why. But if I had your two-year-old son in there, do you think I might have to do something for him? Yes, I might. I might have to either hold him down or something. Or if he had a laceration on his face, I might have to knock him out to do the repair. Why? Can he hold still for that? No. Can Anna hold still for that? Do you see, do you see salvation? 
It is that simple. God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. But He expects you to do what? What you can. It is that simple. I'm going to end with what happened to my friend, Helen. Because I can tell you, I left. I went back to the States not knowing what was going to transpire. I came back to the ER. And oftentimes when I return after an absence of two or three weeks, what do you think my colleagues ask me? Where have you been? But they begin to realize kind of a theme. So they don't even ask anyone. They say, so where this time, Riesenberger? (laughs) So where'd you go? I tell them, well, I went to Peru. Like, oh, see anything interesting? Do you think I had anything to tell them? I said, well, I saw one case that was very interesting. And I told them. And as they listened, they were absolutely enthralled. But you know, the next day, someone came to me, and it wasn't one of the doctors. It wasn't one of the nurses. It was one of our techs who makes about 10 bucks an hour or so. And she had an envelope of $1,000 cash. This lady wasn't a Christian. She said, this is for Helen. I said, thank you. I will send it to her. And that money was used to go to that village to transport her from that village by bus. Oh. Something is... uh, Can you guys see what happened with that? Transported her from her village, allowed her to go to Lima, evaluated her to be evaluated by a cardiologist and a cardiothoracic surgeon to, to get all the needed treatment. And at the end, there was enough money left over to send her to the Adventist Academy in Peru. Because two weeks after I left, she was baptized as Seventh-day Adventist. I didn't spend one Bible study with that girl. I didn't need to. God had already shown her what it was to have a new heart. And I believe with all my heart that God shows that to you too. I want to share with you though that the illustration fails. Because you see, Helen was provided for with that $1,000. But I want you to realize that the illustration ends there. Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. This is Isaac and Abraham. And he says, My father, here's the fire, here's the wood, but where is what? A lamb for the sacrifice. And I can tell you, Abraham's response is God's response to you and I. God, what? Himself. He shall provide Himself a sacrifice. You see, Helen was paid for by someone. But you see, God provides Himself for you. God does not ask someone else to pay for you, to give you the new heart. He gives you His own. You know... Have you ever known someone who needed a kidney? Anyone? Yeah? How many kidneys do you have? Two. When you need a kidney, someone can give you their kidney, and do they survive? 
Yes, because you can survive on one kidney, right? But what if your heart is failing and you need a new heart? Can someone give you a heart and still survive? No, they can't. And don't you see, that is what God did for you and I. We needed a new heart and He provided Himself that heart that we might live. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, thank you for showing us so clearly how to come to Jesus. Lord, we have to know that you are seeking us, that you are knocking on the door. But Lord, we have to feel our need so that we'll get up and answer the door. We have to respond to you to realize that we are ill, Lord. And Lord, we have to recognize the symptoms of our sickness, which is sin. We have to accept your diagnosis, O great physician, and follow your treatment plan. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Help us to do what we can, Lord, and to know the difference. And finally, Lord, thank you most of all that you are the one who provides the new heart for each and every one of us. That it's not a thousand dollars that someone pays miraculously. It's that you pay with your own life. That you take the death which was ours. That we might have the life which was yours. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC. Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation... Or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.